Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Carl Safina and host Michael Lerner. Carl Safina, welcome to the learning community at the new school at Commonweal. What a joy to have you with us. It's a great joy to be here with you. Really yeah. terrific. Uh, Carl, you and I have met on several occasions and, and found a deep sense of resonance with each other. So it's a special honor to have you here. Um, I will introduce you briefly. Um, uh, you are uh, the, uh, you've been recognized by the MacArthur Pugh and Guggenheim Fellowship programs. You are the inaugural holder of the Endowed Chair for Nature and Humanity at Stony Brook University and the founding president of the Safina Center. You hosted the 10-part PBS series, Saving the Ocean, and your writing has appeared in the New York Times, the National Geographic, Audubon, Orion, and many other places. You are the author of uh, numerous books, Seven for Adults, and uh, today we will focus on two of your books, your newest book, Becoming Wild, which is about whales, scarlet macaws, and chimpanzees, and a recent previous book, uh, Beyond Words, which is about elephants, wolves, and killer whales. Um, but to start off, I'd just like to ask you um, to uh, give us an introductory piece, whatever you'd like to start us off with. Well, the, the new book, Becoming Wild, is about culture in non-human animals. People think that humans have culture because we do. We have a lot of culture, but many people don't realize that other animals have culture too. Culture is the behaviors, the habits, and even the attractions that you learn as a member of your social group. It's something that gives you a group identity and causes individuals to join together and form groups over something that they have in common that is cultural. So the book has three main animals that advance this idea and many others that make cameo appearances. The, the three main ones are sperm whales, macaws, the big parrots, and, um, and chimpanzees. So I'm gonna read you a little piece that is about the sperm whales, which in the book is the first section. I'm in the Caribbean off the island of Dominica with a scientist named Shane Garrow, and we're listening for sperm whales. Sperm whales have an organization, a social organization, it's a lot like elephants. They live in female-led groups. It will be the oldest female in the group, plus her, maybe her sisters or their, all their daughters, and all their young ones. When the young males get to be adolescents, they leave like elephants do, but the young females will stay in the group forever. And there is a good reason to have that social organization. The main reason is that it's a babysitting culture. Their food is two or 3,000 feet down from the surface. They're gone from the surface for about 50 minutes out of every hour. And babies cannot go. Babies have to stay at the surface where they are completely helpless. So somebody babysits for them. It could be a sister, it could be an aunt, 
And that's why their social organization is like that. And their social organization is also very layered. So let me just read you this passage where we've, we've dropped a microphone into the ocean, listening, to, listening for the clicks of sperm whales. If we don't hear them, we move five kilometers and do it again. So the first couple of drops, we had heard nothing. After some interval that I am not closely keeping, our boat is undulating across the massage of long swells. The blue-gray sea is slick and hazy bright. It is both eternal and instantaneous. We travel in small, ecstatic sparks of time. We transit in and out of the company of flying fish, of terns, The sea, glittering, rolls like a carpet of short blue flames. Something like time must be passing, but I feel suspended in an infinite moment that seems to vibrate in place. Perhaps, from the whales, I have learned something about living. At this stop, Shane, listening to the headphones, raises one finger. He hears whales, more than one. Their sonar goes tick Tick, tick. One whale goes silent. She has stopped hunting. Over the next few minutes, others also silence their sonars. They're coming up, up, up. A few minutes later, the dark heads and backs of two whales shatter the harsh sparkle of the sea like tiny newborn islands, the coastline of their bodies generating their own surf. Their white puffs drift on the distance. I listen to them clicking out their clacking codes of recognition, announcing themselves as individuals, announcing their family membership, announcing the clan in which they claim their larger membership. They are braiding their messages of bonding and belonging. Their sound, highly styled, is percussive and precise like castanets. As I listen, the codas go in and out of phase with each other, Sometimes they're perfectly separated. Sometimes they completely overlap, like conversations at a busy table. Three others burst the surface, so total of five up now. And what I'm left with is this impression. A whale is too big to see. At a time, you get pieces. Now the head, now the back, now the flukes, never the whale. In Rome once, I said to my wife Patricia, We've now seen Michelangelo's painting of the creator, but what would the creator's own painting of creation look like? I think that is easy to answer now. It is these whales in this sea. The whales that this ocean has brought forth seem in their pacing and their scale to reflect the enormity of all things past and present. When they all dive, I put on the headphones and I'm amazed at how loud they are. For a couple of minutes, I listened to their affirmations, these short, repeated code words, and then the rally subsides. She just focused her sonar on us, says Shane, still listening. Now she's traveling down. Focused sonar comes in very fast strings of clicks that are called click trains, sometimes more than 600 clicks per second, and they sound like a buzz. They switch to the business of searching, Their echolocation clicks begin coming into my ears. Tick, tick, tick. With time now for a break, most of our crew takes the opportunity to jump into the water. 
Put your head under, you can hear the whales. Vibrating an enormous sphere of water around them, they sound saturate the ocean as they level off perhaps 1,000 meters down. Journalist James Nestor got eye to eye with sperm whales in the Indian Ocean and noted, quote, I heard a thunderous crack, then another so loud they vibrated my chest. Two sperm whales emerged from the shadows, scanning us to see if we were a threat. Within just a few feet of the mother, the click patterns changed, becoming slower, softer. They sounded to me like the sounds the sperm whales used to identify themselves to others in the pod. The whales were probably introducing themselves. They were saying hello. Thank you. Oh, Carl, that's just so beautiful. Let's just take a quiet moment to let that sink in. You know, before we go anywhere else in the conversation, um, Carl, you write so beautifully. You're, you're, in addition to being a great naturalist, you're an extraordinary writer, communicator. Um, did writing come naturally to you in an unselfconscious way, or did you really study how to write in order to communicate? Well, it's a little of both. I think I always, when I was in high school and college, um, I always got good comments about writing if we had to do an essay for class or something like that. But I, I tried hard to analyze certain things about writing that I loved, what made it writing that I loved. I wanted to try to understand that. And, um, when I started writing my first book, I had written a lot of science papers and I had written some policy papers, but I had never written anything like narrative nonfiction. And I really didn't know how to approach it at all. I have degrees in, in sciences, in, in ecology and in environmental studies. I've never taken a course in writing. So I really didn't understand what to do or how to approach it, really. And um, I, I drew on my one developed talent, which is I have, a, I have a talent for rhythm, and I was a professional drummer for a few years. No kidding, I didn't know that. And, uh, yeah. <clears throat> Who did you play with? My best kept secret. I, I played a lot of little gigs. I, I never played with anybody really notable, um, except for sitting in a couple of times. Um, but um, Sitting but in with a who? Lot. I, sitting I, in I, with I, who? Who did you sit um, in with? Oh, I, I sat in with, um, with the, the bassist who used to um, play with McCoy Tyner. Oh, really? With a guy named Arvel Shaw who used to play with Louis Armstrong for me. Whoa. Um, um, the secrets emerge. <laughs> well, you know, in jam sessions, they have to let anybody play. So, uh, so anyway, I, I tried to approach the writing rhythmically. And... Um, I think I think that's part of, you know, to the extent that I have uh, a recognizable writing voice, that's part of it is that I, I do try to think about it rhythmically. And I also try to paint with the words so that uh, I'm always very conscious when I'm writing uh, about asking whether the reader is is here with me holding my hand and can see what we're what we're seeing. And if I don't get that feeling 
comfortably, you know, then I have to work a lot more on the details. Carl, uh, I mentioned before we came on the air that one of the reasons I do these conversations is um, just the encounter with the work of people I really respect. And I've never been good at cocktail party chat or anything. I just always like to go deep. And um, so the encounter with your work uh, over the last few days as I've spent time with it has been so powerful. And I, I just want to speak to where the power is for me because I'm my wife, Shaw Patton, who's on with us. She reads uh, uh, the kind of things that you you write all the time. She's like deeply into this work. And I'm not. I'm into, you know, political theory, philosophy, but uh, I don't somehow uh, read a lot of uh, naturalist uh, uh, work. But what happened to me, because it's so fresh for me, is um, I'll give you an analogy. In our work in the Cancer Health Program, we do these week-long retreats. And we take eight people at a time. And, you know, I've done 210 of these week-long retreats over the last 34 years. And what keeps me in them is here are eight people. And in the course of the week, eight individual souls uh, reveal themselves. And they are all beautiful, without exception. They are all beautiful. And so I had the same experience with your work, except it wasn't people, it was, um, it was animals. And, uh, and there was this sense of encounter at a very deep level. Um, and as you so are, are so able to convey, uh, not only is there animal culture, uh, not only are there animal families, but there are animal individual personalities that reveal themselves in that same unique, unbelievably powerful way. So it was just sort of the shock of the new. I mean, not completely new. I've read these things before, but there was just this sense of shock and what goes with it, which is such a powerful part of what you and I are both concerned about, which is the fate of the, the earth, is the sense of immense tragedy that these beautiful beings are being so thoughtlessly destroyed. So you recently had a piece in the New York Times book review. Um, could you talk a little about that? Well, in, in my book, which is about sperm whale culture, well, the first part of it, the first third of the book is about sperm whale culture. Um, there was a lot that I got into in the research about sperm whales that really was not directly about their culture, but more about our culture and how we thought about them, how we treated them. And of course, um, it is uh, inescapable if you're if you're reading about sperm whales. Herman Melville and Moby Dick come in and out of the conversation a lot, and that's because his book Moby Dick is so multi-layered, so rich. A lot of it is from his immediate experience. A lot of it is from what little was written very very well, though at the time there was a book called The Natural History of the Sperm Whale 
by a physician who had been on a lot of whaling voyages. Uh, that is a great, great book for its, for its day. Melville drew heavily from that as well as from his own experiences in talking about whales and whaling, but his book really is not so much about whales and whaling. It's really about humans and human psychology. And he, you know, as it says here, he tried to warn us about mad, blind authority, about the way that certain kinds of narcissistic authoritarians can suck people into doing their bidding. He tried to show us that there are other kinds of people in the world who do not share our culture and are not of our race and don't have our experience and yet have a natural innate sense of humanity that sometimes, as he says, uh, goes beyond what people in his own culture are inclined to do. He rubbed shoulders with literally with cannibals, with apostates, with, um, all, with all kinds of people these people were all jammed together in these whaling vessels and they relied on each other to survive. They, they survived and worked together. Sometimes they drowned together. And he tried to show us the humanity of people who first horrify us when we first encounter them. And this is beautifully written in his first encounter with the man who becomes his, his mate for life, literally, Queequeg. The, the cannibal from the South Seas, who he is um, forced to share a room with in the overbooked Spouter Inn, he's completely terrified when Queequeg comes into the room, gets into the same bed, and by morning, uh, Queequeg has his arm around him. He says, as though he, he were my wife, he says. Um, but there, there is a love story there. And then finally, he, he seems even prescient about our destruction of nature, because he, he wonders whether the whale can, in, in a very haunting, evocative phrase, I think, whether the sperm whale can long endure so remorseless a havoc as, as that which we are heaping upon it. And um, he concluded that he thought the whale would survive and would maybe survive us and then he, he muses that if, um, if, the, if God ever decides to flood the world again, he says to, to kill off its rats, is how he puts it, then he thought the sperm whale would survive humanity and the creator may decide to sweep huma- all of humanity away in a great flood. So um, very, very deep and prescient thoughts from somebody who was writing in the first half of the 1800s, or wrote this book anyway in the first half of the 1800s, but understood um, really with remarkable insight, I think, a lot about human nature. He, he had developed, as his biographer said, that by the time he was done on whaling ships and on some Navy ships, and he, he jumped ship one time, um, he, he had developed what his biography, biographer called uh, quote, a settled hatred for authority. Um, so very, very, very interesting stuff that I have to say, when I first read Moby Dick, when I was in my early 20s, I 
pretty much totally did not get it. Um, I mean, I was reading it as a, as a science person, uh, an ecologist, and I just thought this is a book about whaling in the old days. And there, there's a lot of natural history there that is not the way we would think of it, you know, nowadays with our, our current understanding of natural history. Some, some of it is. A lot of it is not really. It's a little, little antiquated. Um, and I thought, okay, you know, there's, there's, the, there's the captain, and the captain is, is an awful person, and everybody dies at the end except for one person. Um, but I, I, didn't, I didn't understand the layers of it at all. And I, as I was writing Becoming Wild and going back into Moby Dick, it was compulsively readable in spots. I, I could hardly put it down. In fact, I put much too much of it in my first uh, in my first draft of the book, I had to take a lot of it out. And some, some of the best stuff that I had to take out became this article that you see here. That's beautiful. I want to read one quote from it. <clears throat> Yet Moby Dick is neither whale nor demon, but a white prop contrasting with the demonic Captain Ahab, the tormented tormentor, the malignant abused abuser of authority and of men. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it it is uh, reminiscent of certain uh, 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 political figures in our time. Let me just put it that way. Um, Carl, perhaps you might stop sharing your screen now. That would be great. Wonderful. So um, we're going to come back to Wales. But um, as I read... Um, these two books, Becoming Wild and uh, Beyond Words, uh, there was a, um, there was three quotes came to me, uh, one from your book and two from other people. The first is a well-known quote from Dostoevsky, uh, which I'm sure you know, or imagine you do, beauty will save the world. Uh, The second is a quote from Aurobindo, who was a great Uh, Hindu saint and a contemporary of Gandhi's, which I just love, which is the future, if there is to be a future, must wear a crown of feminine design. The future, if there is to be a future, must wear a crown of feminine design. And the third is from uh, your segment on macaws, which is a quote from a, a naturalist, Sexual selection is Darwin's really dangerous idea. And, and, and that whole segment is about beauty. So um, what um, I wanted to focus in on is uh, your, your thoughts about beauty, and um, particularly uh, the place where in the segment on macaws, uh, you you go beyond the power of beauty for female sexual selection to deeper reflections on the role of beauty in in sentient life. Let me put it that way. Right, right. Well, um, I wanted to mention also, um, as I'm, I'm trying to look for a name that is escaping me, but, you know, that quote about beauty will save the world. Yeah. Um, the musician Paul Winter 
told me he he mentioned that once to a friend who is a, a noted poet, but I can't I can't quite remember his name. He's a Russian, um, and the re- the immediate response back was yes, but who will save beauty? Yeah, that that's our that's our task and our problem. Page one ninety two of Becoming Wild. And the quote starts, natural selection has been called Darwin's dangerous idea. Prum calls sexual selection Darwin's really dangerous idea. Sexual selection leads to the conclusion that females, by the power of their mate choosing, have created essentially all of the beauty in the animal world. Living beauty is largely the manifestation of millions of years of female imaginations exerting arbitrary preferences. That's enough to rock the planet, but let's venture much further. So when you venture further, where does it take you? Yeah, well, um, it takes you in several directions. First of all, it is true that almost... All of the living beauty, so remember there's, there's what we think of as beauty that's not living, like the moon, uh, a sunset. We see those things as beautiful. They're not alive. But living beauty, all of the ornamentation in living beauty, I'm not talking about camouflage. I'm talking about exactly the opposite of camouflage, the stuff that really sticks out at some peril, I might add, usually is chosen by living things. Beauty, that kind of beauty is the result of the choices living things have made over many millions of years that they have been choosing beauty because of a fairly arbitrary sense of aesthetics. And when I say arbitrary, it's because in some species, uh, you know, red wings are beautiful, and in other species, uh, 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 black stripes on the face are beautiful, or whatever it happens to be. Those, those beauties are not usually linked to anything practical, um, because as I said, we're not talking about camouflage, we're talking about ornate kinds of living beauty. And I think that, first of all, it's mind-blowing to realize that much of the beauty in the living world has been chosen arbitrarily because it simply looks nice and attractive for no other reason than that over many millions of years. Darwin was the first one to intuit this. He realized that natural selection, which accounted beautifully for something like camouflage, if you're not camouflage, you're not hidden, you're more likely to be eaten, could not possibly account for all of the bright standout colors. And he wrote to a friend of his, the sight of a feather in a peacock's tail makes me sick whenever I think of it. Because he, he realized that, that natural selection did not account for a lot of what we see in the living world. So he had to find the mechanism that did account for the rest of it. And what he, what he realized was that there is what he called and what, what is still known as sexual selection, which just basically means that because females have thought a certain trait looks good, they want to mate with males that have that trait. Most most male birds have 
brighter colors than many female birds. Uh, one, one good exception is the macaws that I wrote about where both sexes look like fruit salad. They're just incredibly extravagant. And they, they look beautiful to each other is the only explanation known for this kind of beauty. Uh, another question that one then starts to get into, or at least I started to ask, because I'm always trying to puzzle things out to their logical conclusion is, well, you know, if something looks beautiful because it's designed to attract, then why are we attracted? Why, why do we think that some things are beautiful? And two things come from this line of thinking, I think. One is that the beauty in the world has a very strange universality to it. Many things that look beautiful to other animals, and we know that they look beautiful to other animals because they have no other purpose except looking beautiful, also look beautiful to us. We see, we see many brightly colored birds as beautiful. We see ornate tail feathers as beautiful. We, we see antlers on male deer or moose or elk as beautiful things. We see flowers and the scent of flowers as really beautiful. There is a multi-billion dollar industry to grow flowers and cut them for our tables. And yet flowers are only there to attract pollinators. The pollinators have to see them as attractive, but we don't have to see them as any more attractive than the roots. Yet the plants have evolved these things because insects and other pollinators found them attractive. And we who have nothing to do with pollination are not on the same evolutionary trajectory as insects that branched off from us hundreds of millions of years ago, we see flowers as beautiful. We smell flowers as beautiful. You're listening to a TNS Conversation with Carl Safina and host Michael Lerner. Now, if we see things that are of no practical value to us as beautiful, like a sunset or like the moon, then why do we even have the ability to perceive beauty? And what in the world is beauty to begin with? You have to realize that beauty is not a property of anything. It's a perception of the thing. It's a perception created in a mind. A flower, as far as a plant is concerned, or as far as just you know, the physicalness of it, a flower is no different looking aesthetically than the roots, but we perceive the flower as beautiful because our mind tells us the flower is a thing that is beautiful. The the mind makes the impression of beauty and it makes the impression of beauty. Well, the flower is capable of benefiting from being appreciated, right? Because pollinators will go to the flower and they will finalize the whole function of the flower. Um, they'll pay the pollinators with nectar and, and, um, and pollen, and, the, and then the, the, the pollinators will pollinate the plant and the plant will reproduce. Okay, that's all good. It's a practical aspect of the beautiful for them, not for us. It's not practical for us, but it is for them. But what about something that cannot benefit from being appreciated, like a sunset or a starry night? Why? does our mind give us these, these impressions of beauty, sometimes these great and deep impressions of beauty in the world around us. 
and and the, the the favorite color of most people is either blue or green. There, famously, there, there's a green room in uh, places where where performers are about to go on stage, or or you're about to go on television. You're you're in a green room waiting because green is a relaxing color. Why does our mind do this to us and create these perceptions? What in the world is the benefit of that? And the only thing I can think of is that if you subtract all the beauty from the world, you just have a very grim and difficult, uh, what Darwin called struggle for existence. You You have only a struggle for existence. Why would you bother? Why would you bother if there's no reward, if there's no sense of beauty, either, either physical beauty or the beauty of a loved one or something along those lines? Why would you bother? I don't think you would. I think, I think life is just too hard without beauty. And I think in that way, beauty is what makes living worth the time and effort it takes. And beauty, to me, is what keeps us alive. And, and I think that that is um, pretty amazing when you think of it that way, because our culture generally devalues beauty. We call it mere beauty or just aesthetics. And we say, well, why, why should we save that place just so people can say, oh, it looks beautiful? Well, that's exactly why, because, because a thing is right if, if it's good for beauty and and it and it adds compassion to the world and it's bad if it detracts beauty and and adds ugliness to the world so i I just think that's extraordinary you know that's really helpful so kira epstein uh put in the chat function a quote from brian swim the universe is a green dragon Uh, um on allurement. Love begins as allurement, as attraction. Think of the entire cosmos, all 100 billion galaxies rushing through space. All the, At this cosmic scale, the basic dynamism of the universe is the attraction each galaxy has for every other galaxy. And then Carol Luther writes, or considered Dante in Paradiso, that love is what powers the universe and other stars. Our colleague, Mary Evelyn Tucker, who's on, uh, um, uh, is a, a lineage holder for Teilhard de Chardin, among others. And uh, we've talked, I've done conversations with Mary Evelyn. And the sense that, in other words, we can regard the universe, and, and you may or may not agree with this, but I'll put it out there to see what you think. The, the assumption that the universe is dead, inert manner, matter and that uh, life is a random byproduct of happenstance is one way of looking at it. But another possibility is that the universe is in some sense alive or that the universe carries the potential for life as a central dimension. And you know about the anthropic principle and those strong and weak versions of the anthropic principle, which is basically the universe that we can see appears designed to support life. Uh, and uh, the whole idea of the multiverse was developed because the physicists can't stand the idea that the visible universe appears designed to support life. So if the universe was designed to support life, then uh, then attraction 
or uh, in some sense, uh, beauty, uh, may be rather fundamental. Uh, and it may, and the macrocosm and the microcosm may be, in some sense, related in that way. And so, uh, one question that emerges from those speculations on my part, but at least widely shared speculations, uh, is that the allurement or the uh, the attraction that you see in 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 wildlife um, may be related to the beauty we see in the cosmos. Uh, and that in turn may be related to, in mathematics, the view of mathematicians that a theory, a good theory is beautiful. It must be beautiful in order to be true. If it's not beautiful, there's probably something wrong with it. So I just wonder, because these speculations you may or may not agree with as a scientist, whether uh, you think about the question, uh, does this beauty which you uh, speculate so beautifully about in becoming wild and uh, its functions, uh, does that connect with the beauty we see in the universe, the possibility that the universe is alive and that allurement or, or, or love is central to the whole deal? So that's my question to you. Well, I, I have, of course, thought about this a lot, as have most people we know. And um, my, my thinking is as follows. The, the whole universe does not have to follow us for what we see here to be, to be going on and, and true. Right. Uh, there's a lot of creation and a lot of destruction throughout the universe. I, I don't see it as designed but because I don't understand what the designer would be thinking uh, to be as random as it seems to be in many ways. Uh, it's astonishing in many ways. I don't know if the human mind is capable of understanding what there is to understand about the universe, just as I, th I think that you know, there are many non-humans on this planet with us whose mind is not capable of understanding as much as other minds or human minds. So if we see limitations in other minds, there, there's probably limitations in our mind because we are part of all the rest of it. We are organically evolved from them. So um, I'm, I'm okay with, with the idea that we may not be smart enough to understand everything. But I also think that for what's happening on earth to be happening on earth as it is and as we see it we don't need the whole universe to come along i think that even if uh just a total cosmic accident created life as we see it and life as it has gotten into motion it clearly is in motion it clearly evolves it clearly changes and it clearly evolves certain capacities then the capacity that it has evolved for selecting the for for seeing beauty uh, for having a sensation of beauty and for selecting what is beautiful does not require to me the whole universe to go along and be doing something similar it may just be that this planet is one of a very few or or even a singular exceptional miracle in in the midst of all of the rest of it, all, all the other stars and all the other galaxies 
I mean, who knows? But we, one thing that we do know for sure is that if there is life elsewhere in the universe, it is rare. We, we've looked around a lot. We, we don't see many places that look like it could support life. We don't see any signs of life anywhere. Um, compared to something like gravity, which is everywhere, light, which is everywhere, elements uh, and subatomic particles, which are everywhere, and create what's called the laws of physics, partly because they're everywhere and they act the same everywhere, we have life, which we can't seem to find anywhere else. So we know that at the very least, it's not everywhere. At the very least, life is very rare. And when by definition, you have something that breaks the laws of physics, that's called a miracle. The, one of the laws of physics is that the universe tends toward disorder. Life creates order. Life, life is a, is a self-ordering continuity that um, goes against the mere laws of physics and chemistry. It, it does something really remarkable. And life, life, by definition, is a miracle to that extent, in that sense. And um, wh whether we are singular or, or whether there is other life in the universe, I don't know. But, but obviously, life is rare in the universe. And I don't think the whole universe has to resonate uh, in any conscious way with what's happening on Earth for what's happening on Earth to be really extraordinary. Maybe, maybe the rest of the universe is digging it. I don't know. But, um, <laughs> well, no, I I, I'm, I'm glad I asked you the question because, you know, in these conversations, uh, tensions and differences are often the most interesting things. I think by my nature, I'm basically a mystic and you're basically a scientist. And so it's the encounter of the mystic and the scientist. Perhaps you're a mystic, too. But uh, for I don't me, know. I mean, I think all scientists are mystics. They just they <laughs> just want to understand. Somebody once said to me, you know what a scientist is? And I said, well, a uh, scientist is a person who takes data. A scientist is a person who looks for patterns in data. A scientist is a person who quantifies things. And I said, no, a scientist is a person who never stopped asking the, the question every child asks, why is the sky blue? Yeah. A scientist is the person who never stopped asking that question. I think all scientists are mystics. We, we just, <laughs> as scientists, we like to understand um, and when we understand the world, the world and the rest of the universe becomes more and more incredible, not so, less, more and more. Well, then one, la one last shot at this, because it is a science question. What do you think of the anthropic principle, uh, which uh, physicists essentially created the idea of the multiverse because they couldn't stand the fact that it looked as though the universe was in some sense designed to sustain life? Yeah, that to me is an example of what I mean by the, the limits of human intelligence. Right. Um, one, of the, one of the greatest pieces of wisdom ever imparted to me mm -hmm. was, if you don't know, say, I don't know. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, then let's come back to what you've written about beauty. And I'm on page 197 of the book. And uh, uh, you're exchanging emails uh, with a, a woman named Melanie Stiasny. Uh, a few days after our phone conversation, Melanie Stiasny, having thought about the question of culture, as promised, emailed me. And she was talking about if any fish can be thought as having a culture, it would be Sichlids. Uh, 
And but then um, uh, I'd written back to Kaufman asking, do you see a role for groups diverging because individuals learn a specialization from others who've learned it? Um, and then you go on to say, Darwin Fisher and others have pointed out how arbitrary mating preferences result in peacock tails and elk antlers. I am now convinced that breeding preferences don't just create mating winners and losers, but that breeding preferences can and do create different leagues that take their own games into different arenas. We've seen that cultural innovation and social learning create specialists. Once specialists occur, the stage is set for each to avoid others taking their specialization into a new niche and permanently cutting ties. So as I understand your argument there, uh, beauty and this most dangerous idea of sexual selection, in fact, can account for speciation. Yes, correct. There's, um, there's a little more to that or maybe a little less to that, uh, depending on how you want to see it. Culture, well, Dar Darwin had, as I said, you know, he has natural selection, which is if you stand out or if you're not, not fast enough or if your beak is not the right shape to pollinate the right thing, um, you won't make it into the next generation. And, and that's how nature, in a sense, selects. It's not selection because it's, there's, there's no goal to it. It's, it's just a filtering that the physical and the living environment create. And he realized that that did not account for a lot of what we saw. So he comes up with sexual selection to account for a lot of the seemingly arbitrary beauty that we see. And this is also definitely at work. But I, I think that both of those things don't account for everything that we see because the, the classic view of how new species can come into existence is that some population of a species needs to be physically cut off. The, the most famous one is Darwin's finches. Some finches get blown to a different island. They can't get back. The island is maybe a little drier or a little wetter or whatever it is, and they evolve along different trajectories. They become a little different, and over enough time, they are different species. But first, they have to be cut off. But the reason I was asking Dr. Stiasny, who is a curator of fishes at the American Museum of Natural History in New York, about um, her views about whether culture can be a driver in selection and can actually create species, is that she works on these cichlid fishes that you mentioned. And there are lakes in Africa and in some other places as well where... Uh, well, Africa is the most spectacular example. There are hundreds of species of extremely closely related fish in the same lake. Now, they're in the same lake. They can't get too isolated from one another. But what we see there is that those fish specialize in a certain way of making a living. Some of them look for little invertebrates along the shore. Some of them hunt for planktonic things in deeper water things like that. Some of them have different mating dances. In those cichlid fish, there's a lot of parental care. A lot of fish don't have parental care. Some do. Those fish have a lot of parental care. And what researchers have learned is that the juveniles copy the specializations of the parents 
And the specialists avoid each other at mating time. So without becoming physically isolated, they are culturally isolated. This cracks a door on a big thing because it turns out that there are sunfish in North America that specialize and don't mix. There are sticklebacks in North America that do the same. There are cichlids in Central America that do the same thing. And that's just fish. A, a really good example of cultural separation leading to new species is the orca whales of the Pacific Northwest, and for that matter, uh, of other parts of the world. The, the orcas or killer whales are extreme food specialists. The ones that eat fish only eat fish. They don't eat mammals. The ones that eat mammals never eat fish. The young ones learn from their parents, which is what culture is. They just learn from their parents how to live. Now think, think of humans learning how to live. You could have learned to live as an Inupiat uh, in the Arctic or as somebody who hunts with a blowpipe in the Amazon. But once you've learned that, you can't switch and survive. You can survive in either place if you learn it. You can't switch. Once you learn your culture, that's your culture. And, and, and learning it differently or learning another one later is very, very hard to do. And other animals apparently never do it, and they never have to do that. So the orca whales, the fish eaters, avoid mingling at all with the mammal eaters. It's good to avoid that for the following reason, if nothing else. If you're a fish eater, you want to be in a big noisy group that scares all the fish together in a big tight school so that you can rush through them, easily gulp some stun them with your tail or what have you. But if you're a mammal eater, you need to be in a very stealthy, silent, small group, maybe three, not 30. If individuals from those cultures mingled, they would screw it all up for one another. The fish eaters would be making too much noise. The, the, the stealthy ones would, would be like, where is everybody? I don't know, you know what I'm supposed to do here. That's the way culture works. And what has happened in those killer whales is that they have not bred, interbred, those groups have not interbred for hundreds of thousands of years. Now, there are probably 10 types of killer whales around the world that have been identified by scientists. They're genetically different because of how long they have not interbred. Some specialize on only hunting penguins some specialize on um, hunting killer whales and, and dolphins. Some specialize on hunting only one kind of seal. It's amazing. But the specialists do not mix. They learn it culturally, and then they avoid one another. And they've been doing that for a couple hundred thousand years. The, the main definition of, of species is a, a species is a group of individuals that freely interbreed if they meet in the wild. These do not freely interbreed. So according to the definition, there are actually about 10 different species of orca whales around the world. They have not been described that way formally, scientifically, but this is a way that we see that culture drives separation that leads to new species. And, and this has basically never really been recognized before as a general principle, which is kind of surprising, but um, 
uh, I, you know, looking very deeply into this and thinking about it as I did, it, it seems inescapable that in addition to natural selection and sexual selection, there is cultural selection. Some of it is very, very wild. The, the wildest is that scientists studied culture, that's what they called it, not me, in fruit flies, and they learned that in a particular kind of fruit fly, which has two different color, color forms for eyes, one is pink-eyed fruit flies and green-eyed fruit flies. They're the same species. If a virgin female sees an adult female mate with a pink-eyed male, that virgin, when she mates, will mate with a pink-eyed male. She's culturally copying what she has seen an elder do. And there are quite a few examples of that. That is the most far out one to me. But if you, if you back off into birds and things that are more familiar, you start to see a lot of this. Birds have different song dialects. In experiments, if you bring a male into a huge aviary who's from a different place and he sings a different song dialect, the females will not engage in courtship with him. They want the song dialect that they know. They like their favorite song. And in humans, there are a lot of parallels to this. You know, a lot of the things that other people in other cultures find beautiful, we find hideous. Well, to them, it's beautiful. To us, we're not familiar with it, so we are repelled by it. Uh, Music in other cultures, people love their music. Um, We love our music. It's an acquired taste to learn to love other kinds of music for many people. And on and on and on, clothing, dress, makeup, uh, ceremonies, all this stuff, on and on and on. The main thing that culture does is it answers the question, how do we live here? where we happen to live. It does that for humans and it does that for every other animal that has culture. It says how, it answers how do we live here? The, the problem that humans have with this now is that we, we now live in a world that is globalized where people have moved all over the place, where people are mixed in ways that normally we wouldn't meet people from other continents because there would be an ocean in our way. But in the last, you know, few thousand years, people have increasingly mixed, and yet we have the same reaction to culture. What what culture does in many animals is it causes individuals to clump together into a group and gives them a group identity. We have a lot of group identities. We have religious symbols, team insignias, flags, languages. All of that gives us group identity. And then after the individuals that have something in common group together and have that as their common identity, they don't want to mingle with others. We, we see that in everything, as I mentioned, from killer whales to birds to fruit flies. They don't want to mingle with the others. Often, they simply avoid, but sometimes they are directly hostile. Now, in humans, this kind of thing is still our basic biology and our basic psychology, but it is causing enormous pain and enormous problems for us because we don't recognize it for what it is and simply easily get past it, which, as Herman Melville showed us, we could just as easily do. Well, that's beautiful. Uh, There are so many directions we could take this. Um, I want to... um I want to come back 
to a, a paragraph that you, you've talked about. Um, but on page 203, it's, uh, I think the evidence leads to a stunning conclusion. The world appears beautiful so that the living may love being alive in it. Life has developed and we have inherited a sense of the beautiful to let us feel at home in the world without further reason. Beauty is not superficial or mere or a luxury. Beauty is the birthright of living beings. Imagine the unrelieved drudgery of a life without beauty. Subtract beauty, then consider all the grim imperatives and demands of finding food and shelter, competing, procreating. Who would want to bother? Emerson wrote, he thought it happier to be dead, to die for beauty, than to live for bread. Beauty is the thing that makes life worth the time it takes. Beauty makes life worth the effort, the risks, the frights, and the struggles that being alive requires, and so on. Um, so you give beauty a very central role in, um, in Darwin's most dangerous idea, right? And... Um, you have developed uh, the concept of uh, animal culture. Uh, I think it's fair to say, I'm asking this as a question, far beyond that, far beyond the degree to which it's been developed by other scientists and thinkers in the field, is that a correct statement? Or is there a whole community of you that share that view of animal culture? Um, I think that I'm a pretty good synthesis and there are lots of shards and fragments out there, but, um, it hasn't seemed to be put all together in, in this way before. Mm-hmm. You're listening to a TNS conversation with Carl Safina and host Michael Lerner. And so... Coming back to your observation on humans, which I think is extremely apt, uh, do you see any skillful way of working with it? I mean, let's go, for example, to your your section on chimpanzees. Um, you uh, talk about chimpanzees um, as um, I'm reading, um, we are like chimpanzees. Chimpanzees are obsessed with dominance and status in their group. We are obsessed with dominance and status within our group. Chimpanzees oppress within their groups. We oppress within our group. Chimpanzee males may turn on their friends and beat their mates. Human males may turn on their friends and beat their mates. Chimpanzees and humans are the only two ape species stuck dealing with familiar males as dangerous, and so on. So... um, we often welcome and aid strangers, but we also fear and harm strangers. So you talk about humans and chimpanzees as remarkably comparable. And there's both infanticide in chimpanzees and intragroup hostility, which as I understand from your other examples is much more rare. But therefore, there's also a big premium on peacemaking. 
Could you talk a little more about yeah. that? Yeah, a couple of things about that that I think are instructive and interesting. One is that living in a social group inevitably causes social strain and stress. And so it's important for the group. Well, the, there's advantages to living in the group, first of all, and most fundamentally. Otherwise, if there's strain and stress, individuals would just say, you know, I'm leaving. But they don't leave because there are reasons to stay. There are advantages to staying. But life is more unpleasant than it needs to be because of these ambitions that are expressed violently, the, the desire for dominance, for, for dominance needing to suppress, and these kinds of problems. So what is also needed in that kind of a culture is skill in reconciliation. And chimpanzees have those kinds of skills. Reconciliation is a very basic thing in chimpanzee society, as, as it is in quite a few other social uh, kinds of species, including our own. They, they, um, they will eventually um, go through different ways and different, um, different degrees of getting a little closer, of getting past a difference. Um, if two that have had a fight are having trouble getting past the fight, sometimes a mediator will actually come in and might do something like um, get, get two of the ones that have been at odds and fighting to, to sit near each other. And then the mediator may start grooming one of them. Then the mediator may start grooming both of them at the same time. Then the mediator may get up and walk away so that the ones that had been having trouble now are sitting right next to each other and are in a mood for grooming and will start grooming each other. And that, that's basically a way that they kiss and make up. Um, and that's something that humans have developed a skill for. Often we're culturally taught this skill, kiss and make up, right? It doesn't always come naturally to us as kids. We have to be taught to do this because the strife of a social group is inevitable. But another interesting thing is that the, the stress and strain is also cultural in itself. There are chimpanzees uh, in West Africa that are not as uh, obsessed with rank. They're not as violent. They're not as domineering, even though in those groups also the most dominant individual is a male. But the males are not as prone to worrying about a lot of stuff as the ones in East Africa, who are really obsessed with their own rank and their own dominance. Um, and, and murder within a group is known in, in chimpanzees in East Africa. In fact, like us, somebody that you've known for 20 years may suddenly kill you. That happens in human society, and it happens in chimpanzee society in, in Eastern Africa, but not in Western Africa. The Western chimps just learn a more mellow culture. And then we have our uh, other ape, the bonobo, which looks to us a lot like a chimpanzee, almost identical to a chimpanzee. They are as related to us as, as we are to chimpanzees. And yet um, their social structure is quite different. Famously, the most dominant individual with bonobos is a female. And uh, while males use 
violence to gain dominance. Female bonobos use dominance to suppress violence. They, they're, uh, they're almost completely nonviolent. Chimpanzees are very fearful of adjacent chimpanzee communities. Sometimes they go to war with them. Often if they catch a chimp from another community who is unsupported or alone, that chimp will be killed. But bonobos never, never kill. Um, they, uh, they either just avoid, go back into their own territory, or famously, they will initiate an orgy. So... Um, yeah, they have you know, sex all the time. A out of that, yeah. but that's that's a big difference, and and the most fundamental aspect of that difference is the bonobos are female dominated, and that dominance is used to maintain peace all the time. But but as I said, even the West African chimpanzees maintain peace almost all the time. They don't have as bad violence. The females are are higher in rank than they are in East Africa, and that is just a cultural thing. So, you know, it just shows you as if we need to be shown again, the latitude to which culture allows us to essentially, and humans more than anything, we can invent the kind of animal we want to be in the kind of society we want. We, we presumably we're capable of that because we can think about these things, but the impulses and the reflexes are still are still a huge problem, but even those impulses and reflexes, those are taught generation to generation. They are not innate. You can as easily, you know, as the song says, you have to be taught to hate and fear. You can as easily be taught to just be okay with everybody, mm-hmm. as many of us were, or, or many of us got there on our own. It's possible. Mm-hmm. The, the bonobos, as you said, have sex a lot, and uh, and the female is dominant, right? Um, right. And you also point out that the orcas like sex a lot, right? Right. And um, and uh, they they don't have intra group hostility, correct? Not at all. No. Yeah. No, even though or- orcas are the, you know, they are the most powerful predator in the world and they are equipped to, you know, really inflict damage on other large animals. That's how, that's how the mammal eaters eat. But they do not turn that on other individuals ever mm-hmm. at all mm-hmm. in nature. In captivity, there have been some that, that appear to have just gone psychotic from ill treatment in captivity being kept in isolation and in, in literally in shipping containers uh being kept there for 14 hours a day i mean things that would drive a human insane you know a mind if you have a mind that mind can be damaged and that seems to have happened with the way people have abused orcas in captivity mm. and, and other animals in captivity that have gone insane you write about how orcas, um, when in, well, either in captivity or not, but how the deep sense of communion that humans who spend a lot of time around orcas often develop with them. Yeah. Um, it goes both ways. That's why 
the the people who have studied orcas a lot have seen some very remarkable things that have to do not not only with us understanding something about them, but with them understanding something about us. For instance, um, two very instructive episodes involved two orphan orcas that were somehow separated from their pod. One was a very, very young one, was separated for a few days. People knew where she came from, and that one was reunited. The other, the other one somehow went way up a fjord in British Columbia and lived there alone for several years with no other individuals of its own species. The, the little baby that was united pretty quickly with its group um, was um, found by a researcher named Ken Balcom. And while he was waiting for people to come, they were, they were going to do, um, you know, sort of a very gentle capture of this orca and, and tow it in a pen to where its family was and then let it out. That's what they did. But in the meanwhile, he had to wait a while. And uh, this baby orca was so oriented to him he just he saw a floating branch go by. He picked up the branch and he he tossed it, and the and the baby got it and bring it back and brought it back. And within you know no time at all, instantly, literally instantly, they were just playing a game of fetch and fetch and retrieve with one another. Then Ken got the ridiculous thought, as even he thought it was ridiculous, to go like this. And instantly, with no training at all, the baby rolled over. Now, you can try that with a dog, but that takes a lot of sessions and a lot of treats for the dog to understand that this means roll over. But the orca got it instantly because these animals are very, 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 very intelligent. The one that was up in that fjord was lonely and liked to play with people. But if people were out in a kayak and he came over to give the kayak a, a shove, he'd give it a little, little nudge. If they were in a sailboat, he'd give it a big push. <laughs> he somehow understood, you know, that people in the water could be harmed. And he avoided getting those people in the water. He could easily have gone playing with them by flipping the kayak over and seeing what happened, but he didn't do any such thing. And this is, this is a creature with, you know, no mentoring, no training. Um, uh, somehow this deep intuitive sense of what it means to be human and, and what a human can stand if you're, if you're trying to have a good time with them and, and want them to have a good time with you. You know, this is mind boggling, really. It should not be mind-boggling because this is a capacity that they've had for millions of years. It's mind-boggling because we are essentially completely estranged from the entire rest of the world. We really don't know who we're here with. And when we find out a little bit about it, it blows our mind. It does blow our minds. And, and just as I said, this encounter with the body of your work is so powerful. It reminds me, I mean, I'm not somebody who does psychedelics. You know, I did, did it twice 30 years ago or something, but the people who do psychedelics often have this sense of encounter with uh, the natural world at a very profound and life-changing level. 
Um, you know, um, Carl, I want to ask you, uh, we have about 15 minutes left, uh, but people who meditate also sometimes experience that I have no experience with psychedelics, but I, I did do some meditation for a while when I was in my twenties and one, one evening when I was meditating, a very strange thing happened and it never happened again. And that was, I heard and felt an audible crack. I have no idea what that was about. And suddenly my, my pulse, which you normally don't hear, became extremely loud to me. And my sense of boundaries between myself and everything else totally evaporated. And I, you know, you're supposed to then not examine it and not think about it, but it was thrilling. And I, I could, you know, I really could not, I guess I didn't have the control to not try to think about what was happening. Uh, and I think that made it sort of dissolve and I all, I all came back, but that was, that was an astonishing thing. And so I, I did get a little glimpse of what that feeling feels like. I don't know what it means, but it, it was quite something. I agree. Meditation can do it. And also, some people just have that natural connection. I mentioned my wife, Cheryl Patton, is on the call with us. And she just has this amazing resonance with animals and birds and uh, you know, just this profound sense of connection, which I know that you have as well. Uh, and uh, I want to ask you, just kind of stepping back from the books, and uh, where do you find yourself at this point in your life? Uh, you have this wonderful line in the book uh, about uh, what what gives a whale uh, a, a sense of purpose. And your answer is uh, family. Ah, there is beautiful. What gives a whale a sense of purpose? Yeah, beautiful. Um, what gives you a sense of purpose in your life now? Where Where is the heart of purpose in your life now? Well, I, I think that that's um, I think that's a little bit multi layered. Uh, you know, the, the whale scientist said to me that a, a whale knows who it is because of who it's with. Mm -hmm. And we are individuals because of our relationships to other individuals. And I think that, you know, the same could be said in a larger context. We are individuals because of our relationship with the world. I, in, in another book uh, called The View from Lazy Point, I wrote that Asking what is the meaning in life is the wrong question. The question is, where is the meaning in life? Mm. And as two notes by themselves are not music, it's the relationship between the notes that makes music. The meaning in life is in our relationships. And um, I'm, I'm trying to understand as much as I can and, and as deeply and joyfully as I can about what life is, about who we are with. You know, as Shane said, you know who you are by who you're with, but who are we with, we humans? Who are we humans with on this planet full of millions of species? And uh, the, more, the more I delve, the more I try to understand, the, the, the better it gets. 
for one thing. I, I mean, I can't imagine a, a richer way of living than trying to understand about life. But the sad thing is that um, if you look, if you look at all the different habitats, forest, grasslands, oceans, rivers, coral reefs, if you look at that as a proxy for all of the species in the world, because all the species live in some habitat or other, all of those habitats are at their most degraded and, and most shrunken level ever because humans are degrading and shrinking them. And that means really that humans have made ourselves incompatible with life on earth. This is the enormous tragedy. And um, I, as an ecologist and conservationist, I'm, I'm, I'm supposed to be standing against that and um, doing what I can to, to help maintain life on Earth a little bit. Um, I mean, that, that's also another thing that gives my life meaning and is, is at times and frequently very, a very difficult thing. So I do need to balance frequently with being out, reminding myself that the other living things, you know, they don't necessarily know, luckily for them, what, what is going on and, and the pressures that are closing in on them. And there is still a lot of vitality and a tremendous amount of beauty, um, you know, either in far-flung places like we used to travel to until a few months ago, or or very much so in our own backyards and gardens. Our, our great joy this spring is that uh, an orphan screech owl that was raised and released in our backyard last September decided to live in our yard in a place where we could see where she's roosting every day. She found a mate. They uh, She laid three eggs. They raised and fledged three chicks. And because she's 100% tame, I've been able to follow them around, follow them around the woods, watch them at very close range, and uh, like be part of all of this right in my own backyard, which has been an unbelievable gift for me during this very, very difficult year we're in with this perfect trifecta of, uh, of ridiculous leadership and uh, racial horrors and uh, pandemic. You know, it's what a what a year this has been so far. But we have we have found some great beauties and some joys in it. Tell us about your dogs. Oh, we have three dogs. They are uh, they are also the light of our home. We we love them to pieces. Uh, two of them came from pounds, and. Uh, one is a retriever mix, one is a border collie mix. The, the other is a pedigree mini Australian shepherd who, uh, a friend of mine who lived in a, an apartment in Manhattan had acquired this dog as a puppy. And the dog was, dog had the energy of a nuclear reactor, as I used to joke. And it was totally, totally mismatched being in an apartment. So the, the dog was miserable. The people were miserable. And um, I visited a few times and I thought, this is the worst this is the worst dog experience I've ever seen. And this dog is unbearable to be around. And uh, one time they, they turned to me and said, do you want our dog? And I, I said, no. <laughs> so of course we took the dog and she's now <laughs> delightfully happy. We, we, get, we get to take her to some, we take all three of them often to several beaches and to uh, a, a big open grassy area. 
where they can run around until most of them are exhausted. The young little one is not always exhausted, though. In fact, uh, only seems to re-energize her. But anyway, it's a great joy, as you can tell from, from the smile on my face when I think about them. You spoke about one way that you hold the tragedy of the world, uh, two ways. You spoke about, you know, that there are still these places of beauty, including your backyard and far-flung places. And you also spoke about um, that you're grateful that uh, these species don't know the combined pressures that are on them. Uh, But are there any other ways, and let's put it this way, many of us, I think, find the level of tragedy of what's happening to the earth and happening to all life uh, almost unbearable at times. And so a colleague of ours, Tomer Homer Dixon, has a new book coming out called Command Hope. I did a conversation like this one with him. Uh, and he, he actually has done some deep work on how to find hope. And I think about that a lot, too. Um, are there other sources of hope beyond the two that you spoke of um, that enable you to live with the tragedy that for you is so profound because you are so connected to these other life forms. What else helps you hold hope in the face of this immense cosmic tragedy that we're in? I imagine it's very similar to what makes everybody hold hope depending on what their main source of distress is you know for Mm -hmm. for right now there are a lot of people who don't think much about nature who are deeply distressed about our racial problems for instance Mm -hmm. and and where does hope come from It, it, it comes from balance it comes from finding some beautiful people to be with being in some beautiful places um you know turning on the jazz or or whatever music makes you feel good for a little while some, sometimes, you know, it's like it's an unbearable day and, and my wife or I will say to one another, let's just go get some ice cream. Mm-hmm. Luckily, we can do that. And we understand that there are a lot of people weathering, you're trying to weather the same storm, but we're in very different boats. Some of us are in very seaworthy boats. Some of us are in little leaky dinghies that are going down. And, uh, but but we, do need, we do need to balance in order to come back and, you know, and, and be, try to be part of the energy that's pushing in the right direction and generating some of the ideas and some of the discussions that not only, not only contain what could be the solutions, but also energize the people around us. We, we need each other very much. We need to have discussions like we're having. We need to know that we're not alone in these concerns. Mm. And I think that no, no matter what, you know, particular cause is is of most concern or most troubling. I think the response is probably pretty similar among species, uh, among, <laughs> among species, among people, as far as uh, where you can try to get some hope from. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and again, I think it's I think it's in the beauty. It's in the beauty of other people. It's in the beauty of surroundings. The beauty of human interaction. The beauty of art. The, all these beauties. Somebody in the chat is saying, um, you know, so. Does this mean that beauty is failing to save the world? And, and I would say what it means is that we are failing to save beauty. 
if beauty exists, it saves the world. But but um, if we destroy it, the whole ship goes down. Yeah. Mm. Before I do a close, Carl, I just want to thank everybody who has been with us today. Um, uh, I also want to mention, Kara Epstein just put it up, that we work on a homeopathic budget. So if you like the learning community uh, at the new school at Commonweal, uh, donating what you might spend at Starbucks if you were able to go out there putting it on your credit card on a recurring basis is just a wonderful way to contribute or doing more if you can. Um, and just thank you for, you know, taking the time to be with us. It's a gift, your attention, uh, giving, giving attention to someone or something is the greatest gift any of us can give. So thank you for your attention. And Carl Safina, um, this has been such a joy for me. Uh, we both wanted to find ways to engage with each other. Um, uh, this encounter with your work is, uh, I would say, somewhat life-shifting for me uh, in a sense that um, it takes me closer to my wife, Cheryl Patton's profound engagement with your work and with the work of uh, others uh, on the natural world. Um, I want to mention two sources of hope that we haven't talked about. One is that, um, at least in this country, uh, I think that the combination of COVID and Black Lives Matter and the murder of George Floyd and the economic uh, depression and the complete failure of leadership uh, to deal with COVID in a in a constructive way, as many other countries have, I think there may be a shift in governance. And I think that shift in governance may align with um, the millions of younger people who really bring fresh eyes to this and really are looking for a better world. And the idea of the Green New Deal and ideas like it uh, I really think are going to become the dominant uh, cultural metaphors. Um, so I'm holding hope, uh, not certainty, but I'm holding hope that we may use this moment for a shift in direction. That's one thing. And then at another level, um, you know, systems thinkers who look at the global challenge or the global problematique that we talk about a lot at resilienceproject.ngo and the two dozen global stressors that are creating this bottleneck in evolution that we've been discussing. Uh, but they recognize that at the point of uh, collapse of an ecosystem, uh, that there are possibilities for renewal at a profound level. And that culturally in human history, moments like this have created new orders that are quite wholly new, whether they're benevolent or malevolent is another question. So there's the possibility of a benevolent new order emerging now. And I like to hold that possibility. And, and Thomas Homer Dixon had one line. He said, you know, despair is for people who are certain that there's no way out. He said, but suppose there's a 10 or 20% chance that we may create a better world. That's worth fighting for. That's worth dedicating our lives to. 
So I hold the sense um, that uh, this is a moment, a cultural moment, both nationally and globally, where there is the possibility of a new order emerging. And just as you speak of the cultural difference in animal groups and how uh, some uh, some uh, tribes or groups of the same species live with more peace than others. You know, I want to hold that possibility for us. I want to hold that. And I believe that you are contributing profoundly to an understanding of the natural world and how we could live with it that is seminal to that possibility. So, Carl Safina, uh, thank you so much for being with us. And I look forward to more together. Thank you very much. It was a great pleasure and a great honor to be with you again. Wonderful. Thank you, Carl. You've been listening to a TNS conversation with Carl Safina and host Michael Lerner. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.